Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does that mean? Welcome to Rise and Shine, a weekly podcast where we'll take bite-sized portions of the scriptures. We'll examine what God is saying to us, make some sort of practical and relevant application to our lives, and if we do it right, we'll become better people. In the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Bible reads this way, beginning in verse 1, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven. After a couple of millennia, of course, the time was right to bring the promised kingdom. It was going to begin in the days of Rome, according to Daniel, Daniel 2.44. It was going to begin and have its grand opening in Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But its official start would be after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I mean, after all, isn't that the central message that the Christians bring? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated Satan, and he's defeated death itself. And he did all of this in the death, burial, and resurrection. So what we're reading here, really, in Matthew 4, after the temptation up to Matthew 5, is all this prep work. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus calls on people to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's imminent. It's going to be happening in about three years or so, according to, you know, Jesus begins his ministry at 30. The death, burial, and resurrection is at 33 years old. So the kingdom of heaven is imminent. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, that there would be some standing there in his presence that would not die until they saw the kingdom of heaven arrive. And it was going to come with power. And I believe those people have passed. I believe those people have died, and they did see the kingdom come with power. But I digress. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going around preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is imminent. It's near. It's at hand. And you need to prepare. You need to turn around. In Matthew 4 and verse 23, it says, Jesus went about all of Galilee preaching and teaching. Well, what is it that he's been preaching and teaching? Well, Matthew 5 through 7 gives us a glimpse into the content of what it means to preach the kingdom of heaven and what it's going to look like. In particular, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus seems to begin with the heart. Not just the verse we're looking at today in verse 3, but all of chapter 5 seems to be uh, beginning with people. That the kingdom of God is going to be about a personal transformation of the heart and soul and conduct and spirit of people. He's come to change people. And that's what Matthew 5, I believe, is about. 
the transformation of heart and soul and mind that needs to take place first in the individual. You'll notice in Matthew 5, and known as the Beatitudes, Jesus uses the word blessed. Blessed in a very generic sense means happy. And so he's giving you the keys to happiness. People are always in this pursuit of happiness, and here it is. He's, he's calling us to this blessed life. He's calling us to this life of happiness. But it is a generic term, happy. If you look a little closer, it has to do with an inward joy, an inward peace, an inward contentment that takes place in the transformation of the heart when we begin to follow Jesus. It's an inward joy, peace, and contentment that cannot be determined by outward circumstances. No matter who we are, what we've done, what's happening to us, around us, or about us, that inward joy, peace, and contentment cannot be taken away from us. That carries the idea of blessed. This is what it is to have a blessed life as a follower of Jesus. But he says here in this verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what does that mean? What does poor mean? Does that mean I have to be, live in abject poverty in order to be more spiritual? I have to go around without any material goods in order for God to recognize me and somehow bless me? Is that what this means? I don't believe that's it. The word, that, that sort of poor, the idea of poverty or destitute, it's used in other places. For instance, Jesus became poor for our sake, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. He was destitute of monetary wealth. He didn't have a great deal of land or houses or things like that. He was without material goods. What about the widow and her mites, the poor widow? She was destitute of monetary wealth. So what is this poor? If, it's, if it doesn't mean I'm supposed to be in some sort of poverty in order to be spiritual, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean some sort of lack of self-esteem. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean some sort of false humility, that you put on this show of humility, that you're a different person around people than you are in reality. Some sort of false humility. You remember when Jesus in Matthew 6 says, when you fast, don't let people know it. Wash your face. Make it undetectable by any outward appearance that you are fasting. When you pray, don't go like be like the Pharisees and stand on the corner and Use all this um, loud and flowery language to draw attention to yourself. Go somewhere private and talk to your father, and he'll bless you openly. It's not about false spirituality. It's not about false humility. It's not about tearing yourself down either. It's not self-deprecation and constantly telling people how worthless you are or how dumb you are whatever it is, to tear yourself down. That's a miserable way to live. You stop and think about this. What are the greatest commandments? 
was asked to Jesus once, and he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. So to a degree, we're supposed to love ourselves, not in a narcissistic or arrogant way, but self-esteem, dignity. We are not a doormat for the world to walk on. You have to have some self-respect. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not this self-deprecation. It's not tearing yourself down. It's not false humility or false spirituality. That's not what this is. So what is it then, Mike? What is it? Well, in a word, it's humility. What is humility? Not thinking less of self, but thinking of self less. That's what humility is. A poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit is to, is the attitude of a man who learns to lean on nothing but God's grace, to lean on nothing but, and trust in nothing but God Himself. And sometimes, unfortunately, you got to walk out into the darkness and the wilderness to learn that there is nothing in this world you need more than God Himself. It's not your heritage or your family or anything about ourselves. Just because your family might be Christian and be involved in spiritual activity does not mean that you're necessarily a Christian and saved. doesn't necessarily mean you are poor in spirit. It's not about your heritage. It's not about our abilities, our intellect, or accomplishments. It's not about our education, wealth, or prestige. It's not about our position, our power, or influence. It's not about our morals or conduct or behavior. So what then is it about? It's about the fact that we know that we need God. That I am flawed, but I can be faithful. That I need God. I have this desperate need to have God in my life. To be poor in spirit is to show humility. It is to void yourself of prideful arrogance, certainly in any spiritual matters. To be poor in spirit is to be humble. This poverty in spirit, though, produces a man of faith that will be useful in this kingdom of God. You see, when we think about someone who is poor in spirit... It might be helpful to think of the opposite of that. If a person who may be interested in religious things and attend church and think of spiritual things also might be a man that sees only himself as the answer to everything, the end-all, be-all, the gift to the world. There are people who think that they need no one else there are people that think they have all the answers. There are people who like to be in the lead and out front, have their names in life or in lights. <clears throat> These are prideful and arrogant men, destitute of truth and any true humility, and they do exist. In 3 John, there's a man named Diotrephes, and it's interesting how John describes him. Diotrephes loved having 
the preeminence. It's interesting he uses that word because Paul uses the same word about Jesus and his place in the world in Colossians 1. Jesus, because of the death, burial, and resurrection, because he's the one that defeated sin and Satan and death, that after the resurrection and now is the ascension, that he is the one who should have the preeminence. But here we see in Diotrephes a man, a human being, finite in wisdom and limited because of human abilities and capabilities, but he loved to have the preeminence. He was prideful and arrogant, and he wouldn't even accept the Apostle John. And anybody who did accept the Apostle John, Diotrephes would cast them out of the church because he felt threatened, because he loved to have the preeminence. So again, we ask the question, so what then does it mean to be poor in spirit? How does it produce faith? Well, the one who is poor in spirit knows who he is in light of who God is. What do I mean by that? Well, he's going to have this diligent pursuit of knowing who God is by a diligent pursuit of the Scriptures. And in the Scriptures, he's going to get to know his God who is known as holy and true, who is a God that is pure and majestic, who is omniscient and omnipotent. That is to say, all-knowing and all-powerful. He is the one who is the epitome of righteousness and good with no flaws and no sins and no darkness in him at all. That's just to name a few things. But in light of who he is and this diligent pursuit of who God is, this man this person who is poor in spirit is going to be honest with themselves. And they're going to see themselves in light of who God is. They're going to compare their lives not to their family, not to another person, but to God. And they're going to see themselves for who they are. Flawed, yet faithful. Good, but fall short of God's glory. People who need God, but understand that God doesn't need us. God's going to exist whether I believe in Him or not. And whether I accept the truth of the Scriptures or not, God's still true. God still exists. Whether I accept and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God or reject it, God is still true and He exists. God does not need us, but we need Him. Here's the beauty of that thought, though. He may not need us, but He wants us. And you can see that in the cross, which to me is better than needing us. He wants us. It's a beautiful thought to me. But we're going to see ourselves for who we really are. We're going to see ourselves as flawed while God is perfect. And we can be good as we reflect God's goodness through our lives, our words, and deeds. But we know, and we know that we fall short. We're not going to tear ourselves down, call ourselves worthless, but we're going to understand that we're flawed and we need God. And so the poor in spirit will be humble enough to walk with God
have a relationship with God who is holy and true, pure and majestic, all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous and good, not walk in front of Him with prideful arrogance and say we don't need Him, nor walking behind Him saying we're worthless, but walking with Him and understanding that we are flawed but faithful, that we are good but fall short, that He doesn't need us, but we need Him. And our focus will be on Him. It's, think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus, at a young age, said, I must be about my Father's business. You see, it's about someone else. He said in John chapter 4, when everybody was talking about food, I believe it's verse 34, He said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. It's about God. It's about doing the Father's will in a dark hour of the garden. He said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. It's about someone else. It's about seeking to do God's will. That's the lesson he's teaching us. In the good times and in the bad, we seek to do God's will. And the poor in spirit will do that. Jesus on the cross was thinking of other people. He was concerned about his mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that hour, John took Mary into his house. He was thinking about his mother. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was thinking about other people. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He was thinking about other people. Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. He was thinking of God's will. On and on the examples go. Jesus thought of himself less. This is what it is to be poor in spirit. So let's wrap this up. Let's read the verse again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed for this, this inward, indescribable peace and joy and contentment will go to those who are humbled in the sight of God and see that their real need and the only one they can truly trust who will never fail them, the one that they need most, the one that they want to walk with most is God in Christ Jesus. This inward, indescribable peace will belong to those who are poor in spirit. And then Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is who makes up the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in whether in the United States or anywhere else around the world. These are the people who make up the kingdom of heaven and inhabit it and are citizens of it. For example, these are kingdom people. You ready? Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, prideful, arrogance. The world revolved around him. He told God how good he was. Told him all about his goodness and his moral conduct. I fast twice a week. I give of all my goods and so on and so forth. Look at how good and spiritual and awesome I am. Meanwhile, the publican, standing off in the shadows, smote his breast, wouldn't even look up into heaven and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw himself for who he was. The kingdom of heaven is not about the Pharisee who plays church and looks the part, says the right stuff, looks the right way, 
what is the publican who sees himself for who he is in light of who God is. It's like Peter in Luke chapter 5. He'd been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus told him to cast his net again. Peter was exasperated. This is his profession. He's a fisherman. He knows about fishing. He thought it was silliness to do that. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. At your word, this is what I will do. He threw his net out there, and he caught so many fish that his boat began to sink. And then Peter learned the lesson right there. He looked at Jesus and said, I am a sinful man, Luke 5 and verse 8. You see, the kingdom of heaven is for the humble. The kingdom of heaven is for those who lose their pride. The kingdom of heaven is not for the priest, but for the humble fisherman and the person who will see themselves for who they are in light of who God is. The kingdom of heaven is made for those who will resolve in their minds like Jesus did. Let the cup of suffering pass is what we pray for, but what we should end that prayer with is, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. The kingdom of heaven is for those who will humble themselves in the sight of the Lord and resolve in their minds, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is open to everyone. So as we bring this episode to a close, the kingdom of heaven is open to everyone, regardless of the color of skin, regardless of your social status, regardless of your checkered past. The kingdom of heaven is open to everyone. Everyone who will humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, who will become followers of Jesus, who will understand they are flawed, are faithful. Kingdom of heaven is open to all who will humble themselves and resolve in their minds to pick up their cross, follow Jesus with the resolve to say, Not my will be done, but thine. I want to do your will. Would that describe you today? I want to do what Jesus tells me to do. I need to repent of my sins. I need to confess Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God. I need to be immersed in water for the remission of my sins, to be placed in the body of Christ. Mark 16, 16, Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, 1 Peter 3, 21, just to name a few. I need to pick up my cross and I need to follow Jesus. Say, not my will, but thy will. So that's it for now. If you will, like, subscribe, share this podcast with any and everybody. Help me point people to Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. Until next time, my friends. Until next time.